Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with a young pianist who's taking the jazz world by storm. Brandon Goldberg will be in Chicago to perform with the Chicago Jazz Orchestra later this week. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me for our annual holiday theater preview. Later in the show, with the World Cup upon us, I'll revisit an interview I did with the host of one of the world's most popular soccer podcasts. I interviewed Roger Bennett last year, days before his memoir came out. And I'll talk to travel writer Patricia Schultz about encouraging people to take more trips. That's all coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. This is the sound of jazz prodigy Brandon Goldberg. The 16-year-old pianist already has two albums under his belt, both garnering four-star reviews from Downbeat Magazine. And earlier this year, he became the youngest winner of the ASCAP Herb Alpert Young Jazz Composer Award. Goldberg and his trio will be in Chicago next weekend for a musical tribute to a Charlie Brown Christmas. They'll be performing with the Chicago Jazz Orchestra at the Studebaker Theater on Sunday, December 4th. I recently caught up with Goldberg to talk about his appreciation for Vince Guaraldi, his musical influences, and his introduction to the piano as a toddler. You started playing piano at three years old. Do you know what led you to the the piano initially? So there was a piano in my house that uh, my parents had. My mom took piano lessons when she was in middle school, uh, but she never really stuck with it, but we had the piano in the house. And one day I came home from preschool and I started trying to play the songs I heard that, you know, they would teach us and I banged out the notes on the piano. That's how I got started playing the piano, and my parents figured out pretty quickly that I had perfect pitch. I was kind of curious, you know, starting so young, if it was, if your family, like, realized at a certain point that you had an aptitude for it? My parents realized pretty quickly that I was, you know, I had some sort of connection to the piano, and they tried to get any teacher they could, so I started with a teacher that was in the neighborhood, uh, and then, yeah, they were always looking for programs for me to do to be a part of, but it's you know, hard to convince these programs that are accepting middle school and high school musicians, oh, let in my three-year-old son, let in my four-year-old son. <laughs> right, right. Growing up, like, what type of music did you like listening to? So I would listen to and play anything that my parents or my grandparents listened to and would play for me. So one of the first things that I really got into, and it's still a huge influence to me today, is Frank Sinatra. My grandparents played me a Frank Sinatra video and I immediately became obsessed with that. And I think that's, yeah, that's what led me to jazz music is going down the rabbit hole, which is something that I tend to do for everything that I do. I quickly started to explore all the other Rat Pack members and I found the Tony Bennett and Bill Evans albums one day. And then hearing Bill Evans play with Tony Bennett was really, I think that really opened my eyes and it was like wow that's what I wanted to do. you know I play the piano if I can play if I can play like that like that would be incredible so kind of like a, a journey like you started listening to this and then that led you to something else to something else yeah exactly but still Sinatra to me that's perfect music like Frank Sinatra is to me the greatest that's always kind of like what I come back to you know a lot of the music that I play and playing jazz music he sang all those great American songbook songs so whenever I'm learning a new one or whenever I'm trying to learn something else about a song I'll always go back to his recordings it's hard to describe how incredible he is you kind of just have to hear it he was definitely special so I read somewhere that you, you won this ASCAP Herb Alpert Young Jazz Composer Award which uh, congrats that would be a great achievement thank you is composing something that you've always been interested in or that come as you got older? No, I've always been interested in composing. And I would always hear these little melodies or chords that went together. And I would always try to create songs out of that. Uh, and it's something that I was always curious about and something that I always wanted to explore. And I've written a lot, whether that's 
small ensemble music that I play with my trio or I play with a quartet or a quintet or a larger ensemble works. I've written two larger ensemble pieces, piano and orchestra for the Miami Symphony. And it's something that I want to continue pursuing and continue exploring. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with pianist Brandon Goldberg. He and his trio are coming to Chicago to perform at the Chicago Jazz Orchestra on Sunday, December 4th. They'll be presenting a musical tribute to a Charlie Brown Christmas. So are you a, a big Vince Guaraldi fan? I am, I am a Vince Guaraldi fan, and we first did this three years ago, 2019, before the pandemic, with Jeff Lindbergh, the conductor of the Chicago Jazz Orchestra, and I'm really excited to be back with Jeff and playing this music again. I was thinking, you know, for a lot of Americans, uh, I think that Charlie Brown Christmas special is maybe their first exposure to, to jazz. Yeah. You know, I think everyone recognizes the Linus and Lucy theme, and most people recognize Christmas time is here. You know, there's something very familiar to it, something very approachable about it. So you mentioned uh, you've come to Chicago before. Have you had a chance to explore our city? Not really. I've been to Chicago a few times, but I haven't really had a chance to explore Chicago. I was there this summer, and I went to the Navy Pier, but I haven't really been around Chicago too much. Any, like, jazz-related things that you're going to try to check out while you're here? Uh, If we have time, I know there's some great clubs in Chicago. There's the Jazz Showcase. Most of it's going to be in rehearsal, but I hope to check out and explore some of Chicago. It sounds like you've been to Chicago in December before, so I know as someone who lives in Miami, I was going to say make sure to pack your winter coat, but it sounds like you, you know what to expect. Yeah, it'll definitely be a big weather change. And then one last thing for our listeners, maybe unfamiliar you're only 16, but you've already got two albums under your belt, both uh, reviewed pretty highly by Downbeat Magazine. Do you have another album in the works? What's next? So I do. So I've been playing with Ben Wolf and Aaron Kimmel for about a year now, and I've really enjoyed myself, and I learned so much from them anytime I do play with them. And we were talking about you know, doing something in the recording studio, and we've got two dates at Jazz and Lincoln Center. We've got two nights at their Dizzy's Club. And we'll be recording those, so we might be putting those out for release. But yes, there is a third project in the works, and we're still figuring out exactly what that is. And will that be uh, new material or covering some standards? Yeah, it, it'll be a combination. A lot of the music that we have been playing are, you know, Great American Songbook songs, songs written by Jerome Kern, Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Cole Porter, as well as some more modern songs, you know, songs written by Henry Mancini. Uh, Burt Bacharach, and some originals. So it's a combination of all of those. Look forward to, to seeing what's next. Brandon, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's Brandon Goldberg. The 16-year-old phenom will be performing with the Chicago Jazz Orchestra on December 4th at the Studebaker Theater in the Fine Arts Building. They'll be presenting a musical tribute to a Charlie Brown Christmas. You can find more information about the concert at cjomusic.org, and you can check out Brandon's website at brandongoldbergpiano.com. And you're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving. Well, it's around this time every year we start to see all the holiday productions open up. And today we're going to highlight some of the dueling critics' picks for the season. Traditionally, the holiday season has been an opportunity for theater companies and performing arts organizations to sell a lot of tickets. The past two Decembers have been challenging to say the least as we all attempted to navigate the pandemic. This holiday season, most area theaters are presenting some type of in-person production, and I get the sense that expectations are high that audiences will be back. But what are your thoughts, Carrie, Jonathan? Do you get a sense that people will be going back to those holiday productions like they were pre-pandemic? You know, I 
I would hope so. I know last year things came back live, but, you know, holiday classics like The Nutcracker at Joffrey and Goodman's annual production of A Christmas Carol had to, you know, had to shorten their runs because there was another surge. We're certainly hopeful that won't be the case this time. It's interesting you asked about audiences coming back this week, uh, this past week in the Chicago Reader. Our culture columnist, Deanna Isaacs, provided a sort of sneak peek at uh, Theater Communications Group's new report. And it looks like there has been, you know, there, there are... Some theaters are in trouble. Some ticket sales are declining. Subscription income has taken a dive. Um, so we're not out of the woods yet. But I think the theater season, I'm sorry, the holiday season, it's traditionally a time when families do go out and see shows. They get together. Even if they don't go a lot during the rest of the year, there's often the tradition of a family theater outing. And so we certainly hope a lot of our listeners will be taking advantage of that for themselves and also for the arts organization. Well, absolutely. This is, oh, I think you both know, this is what I usually refer to as the sugar plums and treacle time of year <laughs> in the theater season. That it's, uh, It may be motivated by love and full hearts, but it's also motivated by commerce. Uh, and, Carrie, what you say is true, that... Uh, Theaters are still on the comeback trail in terms of recapturing subscribers and single ticket buyers. And Christmas time, the holiday shows are a wonderful opportunity to do that. Uh, I would like to refer, I mean, you and I are going to rattle off a bunch of names, but I want to refer listeners to the League of Chicago Theaters website, chicagoplays.com, chicagoplays.com, which has details on every show we're going to mention, plus probably uh, quite a number more, and uh, you can break it down to, you know, family-friendly shows, shows for kids, musicals, and I believe they even have a separate breakout category for holiday shows this year, and that's the place to get all the details, chicagoplays.com. I counted on, uh, as I counted them up, I counted at least 20 uh, holiday season shows. Some of them have already begun their runs. A few will, um, and, and others will start in the next week or two weeks. And I did not include a single Christmas Carol production or a single <laughs> Nutcracker Suite. So this is all just other stuff. So I, I think is, the is numbers... that even is that legally permissible, Jonathan? I don't know. <laughs> not you know include what? Nutcracker and Christmas Carol. <laughs> Gary, I've always been a maverick when it comes to the holidays. <laughs> Well, let's uh, dive into it then, uh, and I think the best place to start would be maybe the uh, the productions that are considered traditions or holiday favorites that come back every year. Probably half the shows being done are familiar, things that have been done before, sometimes many, many times, uh, familiar and, generally speaking, family-friendly fare. A lot of musicals, holiday musicals. Dur Drury Lane, Oak Brook is doing Elf, the popular musical. Uh, Marriott uh, Lincolnshire Theater is doing A Christmas Story, another popular musical. The Paramount Theater uh, out in Aurora is doing The Sound of Music. Not exactly a <laughs> Christmas story, but very much a family-friendly musical. So there is a lot of familiar stuff out there, including, uh, Carrie, I think you've been following this. There, there are a couple of productions of It's a Wonderful Life this year, right? Right. This is, I would say It's a Wonderful Life, presented in a live radio staging format, um, is almost as popular a tradition now as A Christmas Carol. American Blues Theater has... Uh, has done there several years in a row. Uh, if you've never seen it, it's, it's quite enjoyable. They do things, you have a live Foley operator, sound operator on stage making the live sound effects, and that's every bit as much a part of the show as the actors who are, you know, delivering the story. They do, you know, little tributes. It's all kind of in the idea that you're watching this unfold live in an actual uh, vintage period radio you know, studio in the 1940s. Uh, so they'll do little, you know, telegrams, uh, shout-outs to people in the audience. Um, in the past, they've offered cookies and cocoa. I'm not sure they're doing that yet with the COVID, you know, still being among us. Um, it's a really, really delightful, heartwarming show. This year, they're offering special tributes to teachers. If you go to the American Blues Theater website, you can read some lovely, lovely memories people have written about their favorite teachers, and there's a chance for some of these teachers to receive free tickets. So I think that's, you know, speaking of people who are heroes during the shutdown, um, I think that's a very nice way. In the past, they've done it for people in the military. So it's a very community-based kind of feeling. I know Glenview Theater in the suburbs, uh, Oil Lamp Theater, has also presented 
a live radio version of It's a Wonderful Life. So if you're up around that area and don't want to come all the way down to Wicker Park, that's another option for you. And both those productions are already up and running. American Blues, I think, runs through December 23rd, and the Oil Lamp Theater in Glenview, their production runs through December 30th. Carrie, what about all the, I said I haven't counted any Christmas carols or Nutcracker Suites. Did you find any? One or two. I am planning on going uh, tomorrow to see the opening of A Christmas Carol to Goodman. It's been a few years. Larry Yando is returning as Scrooge. If you've never seen him, he's wonderful in the part. You know, I don't know that they've changed a whole lot, but they do interesting things with the casting here and there, and it is definitely sort of the flagship production of that particular story. It is what I refer to as the mother of all Christmas. Yes. Yes. You know, and and I have to say, every time I see Larry Yando, I, I just find... He finds new ways to keep it fresh, and I think there have been no shortage of wonderful Scrooges from the, the late uh, Bill Norris to Tom Mueller, but Larry is definitely a, a fine uh, continue, fine person to be continuing that tradition for now. I'm not sure how many more years we'll want to do it. If you've never seen him, do take advantage of the fact that he's in it. But there's also manual cinema as Christmas Carol, which I think you and I covered, Jonathan, when it was done virtually during the shutdown. Yes, we it's did. Returning, it's returning in a live version at Riders Theater. If you've not seen manual cinema, they use shadow puppets, projections, music, uh, paper puppetry, all different kinds of visual elements, visual and oral elements to convey the story. Now, I'm not sure if it's going to follow the same sort of trajectory as the story that they did virtually, which is very much about a woman mourning the loss of her husband from COVID and kind of being shut down and shut down in the shutdown. Uh, so I don't know if the narrative is remaining the same. But one thing you're always sure of with manual cinema is that you will have a visual treat. Uh, so if you're up, you know, up, up for a trip to Riders Theater, I think that might be a little bit of more of an offbeat way to experience the story. There's also another suburban version at Metropolis in Arlington Heights. And Drury Lane, in addition to running Elf, uh, their, young, their youth matinee, family matinee uh, presentation of A Christmas Carol, which has been running for a long time, <laughs> it has returned. I was uh, joking beforehand. I remember taking my nephew to see that show a million years ago, and now he just let us know that he's moved in with his girlfriend. So, you know, <laughs> people, families grow up, you know, boys grow into men, but... A Christmas Carol remains constant. <laughs> what about some shows? You know, sometimes people ask us, you know, uh, uh, can I take my young kids to a show? And I mean, mm-hmm. you and I try to give a heads up if we think something is not for six or seven or eight-year-olds or ten-year-olds. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about those who are two, three, four, the real toddlers. And there right. are a couple of holiday season shows that are specifically designed for kids that young and appropriate for them. One is at Chicago Children's Theater, and it is a, 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 it's become an annual production uh, for them. It is the Beatrix Potter Holiday Tea Party, and it is an interactive thing, and I believe there is hot chocolate or cocoa and treats, and it is designed for children ages 2 to 6. The Beatrix Potter Holiday Tea Party at Chicago Children's Theater. It's running now. It runs through December 24th. And we should mention that a lot of theaters doing holiday season shows such as this do them, you know, have matinees or extra matinees during the holiday season to accommodate families and children. So that's one at Chicago Children's Theater uh, with all the Beatrix Potter characters. Mm-hmm. And also Straw Dog Theater, now performing at The Edge, a nice, very comfortable theater in the, uh, in the Edgewater mm-hmm. neighborhood, The Edge on Broadway at uh, Catalpa. Uh, Straw Dog Theater is doing, for the fifth year, a Hanukkah uh, show, Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblin, which is about a one-hour or maybe 70-minute show with live music mm-hmm. and magic, uh, a Hanukkah story based on a very, very popular book, uh, and it's free. Performances are free of Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblin by Straw Dog at the Edge. And small children can attend that also. You can yeah. feel comfortable bringing your little kids to that. Yeah. That opens December 11th. So it hasn't uh, opened yet. December 11th and runs through the 31st. Yeah, and I have seen that show in the past, and I thought it was quite charming. So, yes, I, I echo a thumbs up on that one. Hey, if you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. 
I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking to the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. We're previewing some of the holiday productions that are opening up in the Chicago area. And so we just covered some of the productions that would be appropriate for younger audiences, more family-friendly. On the opposite side of the, the spectrum, I've heard a rumor there are some more adult-oriented programs out there. Carrie, what are some of the productions for uh, more mature audiences? Theater Wit is bringing back Who's Holiday, which they premiered last year. Uh, it was the first time they'd done that. After many years of doing, speaking of jaundice, David Sedaris's, um uh long-running piece, uh, whose name is I am blanking on right now. Help me Santa out, Jonathan. Santa Diaries. Santa Land Diaries. Thank you. How could I ever forget? <laughs> anyway, Whose Holiday, don't be fooled by the title. It's not really about the Grinch, except that it kind of is. But this is an irreverent take on the story of the Grinch. It features a decidedly grown-up Cindy Lou Who, knocking back drinks in her trailer, and reminiscing about that famous Christmas Eve when the Green Goblin showed up at her house. Uh, I have not had the, I did not have a chance to see this last year. I am hoping to see it this year. It did very well. In fact, I think it even took home a couple of Jeffs or was nominated in that new short ca- uh, short run category that you and I had talked about a couple you know a couple of programs ago on the Jeff Awards. Um, so yeah, that that definitely seems like a good possibility. And I know Theater Wits Bar will be offering several themed cocktails, as is de rigueur now for a lot of theater bars. We haven't talked. I think you and I uh, in the past. You know, a couple of times reviewed the long-running anthology series, shall we say, from Helena Handbag. <laughs> their spoof of the Golden Girls, and this time they're doing a holiday spoof subtitled "The Obligatory Holiday Special." So they've definitely decided to lean into it and, and grab some of that cash cow. They're, it's uh, this time around. It's Sophia's friends at the Shady Pines Retirement Community finds that they are facing eviction and the girls have to step in to save the day. So there will be undoubtedly body humor, you know, double, triple, quadruple entendres. Um, But also, it's in its own way, I think, a very warm-hearted show and a way to say, Thank you for being a friend to uh, to right. anyone who you might want to bring along. What about, isn't Annoyance Theater offering something we could call for adults this year? I don't know that Annoyance does anything but shows for adults, generally speaking. Uh, I know one of their shows we really can't mention necessarily by name because it contains a, a not-safe-for-radio <laughs> uh, profanity. But they are also doing a show that's running on Sunday nights called the Hanukkah Comedy Show. So, yes, not so if you're not looking, if you've taken the kids to Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins, then you want something just for yourselves, you can go over to Vermillion's on Sunday night. Uh, the Hanukkah Comedy Show, which is just sort of a, a, a showcase of comedians and performers, they promise it will feature some of the funniest Jews in Chicago. Jonathan, if you're not in the lineup, then I'm going to think that that's a case of <laughs> a, a case of false advertising. But nonetheless, <laughs> every Sunday at 7 p.m., uh, starting this Sunday and then running through December 18th. Okay. What did they call that one? A Hanukkah? A Hanukkah comedy show. Just pretty generic, but uh, it says Hanukkah. it's open to everyone except children. They specifically say it is not for children in the description. So it's about an hour of sketch comedy, true stories, uh you know, a way to, you know, get away from the uh, the dominant cultural paradigm, if you will, <laughs> for about an Excellent. hour on a Sunday. Excellent. We always try to get away from the <laughs> dominant cultural paradigm. Uh, you know, Cherry, we like to do new work in Chicago, and there are some different things. One of them, uh, out in the uh, the western suburbs in Glen Ellen, uh, the College of DuPage, is the, you know, the resident theater company out there, the Buffalo Theater Ensemble. Mm-hmm which performs at the MAC uh, Performing Arts Center. They are doing Sir Alan Ackborn's wonderful comedy, Season's Greetings, oh. which is about, you know, it's a, a British comedy about a Christmas where uh, <laughs> everything that could go wrong does go wrong. <laughs> and uh, uh, Buffalo Theater Ensemble is doing it right now, and it runs through December 12th. Oh. You know, another show that is not specifically holiday-related, but definitely feels holiday-related, is Twelfth Night. Uh, Midsummer Flight, who usually performs outdoors, uh, Shakespeare Outdoors, free performances in the parks, they're returning to the beautiful Lincoln Park Conservatory for their production. That's running December 1st through the 18th. I have seen the show before, so it's a lovely opportunity to see uh, this, this terrific, fun, gender-bending Shakespeare comedy 
in the environment, not just of the conservatory itself, which is always beautifully decorated for the season, but if you have time, you can also take a stroll through Lincoln Park and maybe uh, enjoy some of the Lincoln Park zoo lights when they're when they're up and running. Um, Caroling with the animals, I think they call it at Lincoln Park Zoo. That's yes. absolutely right. Yeah. yeah, we also know that there is a world premiere of sorts um, at uh, Northlight Theater which has been doing for several uh, Christmas seasons in a row uh, a, a take, as it were, on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, or at least featuring the characters from Pride and Prejudice, uh, especially Georgiana and Kitty. And this mm-hmm. is a, a world premiere, but it's certainly inspired by the Jane Austen novel, Georgiana and Kitty, Christmas at Pemberley at Northlight Theater, still performing in Skokie, and running now through December 24th. Right. And if you're interested in circus arts, and who isn't really, uh, A Magical Cirque Christmas has a very short run from December 6th to December 11th downtown at the CIBC Theater. You know, another one we hadn't mentioned yet that's kind of coming back that's become a, a standard of its own sort for Looking Glass Theater is Mary Zimmerman's The Steadfast Tin Soldier, based on the, the fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. Now, I don't think that show involves the same amount of circus arts that perhaps we've seen with other Looking Glass shows, but there's definitely a lot of great puppetry from the Chicago Puppet Studio, music, and all telling this uh, this, this tale of imagination about a, a, a toy soldier and, and his love for the, the paper ballerina. That's also very much a family-oriented show. So that's, uh, you're looking again for something that's not super specifically Christmas, but definitely family-oriented. That might be a good one to put on your, on your dance card. Indeed. Work. And, and how about Little Women? Would you consider that a Christmas show? You know, really. I think it often is. Well, it, it starts at Christmas, and I think that's why a lot of people yeah. identify it as a Christmas story in some in some in some manner. Yeah. Well, there is a new world premiere stage adaptation of Little Women being done at First Folio Theater out at the Mays Lake uh, Forest Preserve in in Oak Brook. Uh, it opens December fourteenth and runs for a month until January fifteenth. Uh, and this is First Folio's final season, and they're going out with uh, I think style and. And Flash, and uh, their holiday offerings will premiere a version of Little Women. And they have matinees on both Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. Most shows don't offer that. Now, there's a short run of a show that I think you and I both have probably loved in the past, The Christmas Schooner, a musical. That's going to be at the Beverly Arts Center, so if you're down in that part of the city, it's only running December 8th to the 11th. But this is a show that I believe uh, began with Bailiwick Repertory, went on to have, I think, Mercury Theater on Southport has produced it in the past, and it's based on the true story of the Rouse Simmons, which was a Great Lakes schooner whose captain during the late 19th century would go up to Michigan's Upper Peninsula to bring Christmas trees back to Chicago's German immigrants who missed that tradition in their in their uh, in their uh, new country. Um, it's a really lovely piece, a little bit bittersweet, uh, no spoilers, but um, it's a, a made-in-Chicago tradition that hasn't been around a lot lately, so if you've never had a chance to see it and have time to, to run over to the Beverly Arts Center, that, again, is the Christmas Schooner running December 8th through December 11th. I want to remind everyone again that a lot of these shows have special holiday season schedules, so check them out and see how it fits in with you, you your plans, and your family's plans. And I would also like to suggest, website. we were talking earlier about bringing audiences back. If you're still oh. doing Christmas shopping, um, if, you're giving, if you're looking for places to support on Giving Tuesday, any local performing arts organization would be more than happy to, to talk to you about buying a gift certificate, buying a gift subscription, or just taking your money as a donation to keep the work that they're doing uh, going along as, as best they can in these still challenging days for live performance. Good point, and we need to remind people that Christmas is now just four weeks away, four weeks from today, this very day. Christmas follows fast on Thanksgiving's leftovers. <laughs> All right. I think we covered a, a lot, uh, as Jonathan and Carrie both Probably said. Probably too much. But. Go to uh, <laughs> chicagoplays.com to follow up on anything that piqued your interest. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. You're All most right. welcome. You're welcome, Gary. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. Lots of people are traveling this weekend. 
But even beyond the holiday, more Americans are traveling for leisure. According to a recent report released by the MasterCard Economics Institute, for the first time since COVID essentially halted leisure travel, the number of trips being taken has returned to 2019 levels. According to the report, if flight bookings continue at their current pace, an estimated 1.5 billion more passengers globally will fly in 2022 compared to last year. New York Times bestselling author Patricia Schultz has written about travel for decades. But she was cooped up just like the rest of us in 2020 and parts of 2021. And it was during that time when she wasn't able to travel that she came up with the idea for a new book. It's titled Why We Travel. I caught up with Schultz to talk about the new book and her thoughts about travel in general. You've written extensively about travel in your career. For this new book, what was the the starting point? Well, the starting point um, really came around during the pandemic, as you know, so many of us found ourselves with the unprecedented amount of free time. And I was being very stationary for the first time since I could remember not really going anywhere except from my computer to the refrigerator and back again. And um, I was not traveling and feeling kind of glum for the world and for the situation and for all of the news we were being bombarded with. But I think it was that moment when everybody realized that there are no guarantees. You know, now things are lifting and improving and people are, are being able to resume a good degree of life as we knew it. And in my world, that meant traveling again. And I just took um, a more reflective look at why travel was important to me and to everyone. And um, why is it that we love it so much? And what does it bring us and guarantee us? Because it is kind of a guarantee that if you make the effort and the time and spend the money to make that trip happen, then you're pretty much assured of coming back having had maybe not a life-altering trip, but certainly one of great value and great memories, great life memories and and great uh, experiences. And with the people you meet along the way as well, not just the destination per se, but as a package, you know, the whole nine yards. I've never really had a bad trip. A bad trip is always great experience, as they say. The book explores all aspects of why, and I think it's um, going to serve as a reminder to many of us of why travel has always been important and why we should do it as much as possible now that we can again. There's these little anecdotes written by you about your travels, so it's almost kind of like a a tease of a a memoir from your travels. Yeah, I guess it is, and I I never um, thought about wanting to or needing to write my memoirs except that people kept asking me these you know same questions well did you go here and what was it like and what happened to you and um seemed genuine genuinely interested in how to make it happen or i always get this (laughs) i always get this comment about how i want your life one of the quotes in here is about how i always thought this is not so much my own thoughts, but um, certainly close to what I used to think is that I, I always thought that, you know, I always knew that I wanted an exciting life and I was waiting for somebody else to make that happen. When in fact, you need to do it yourself. You know, we are our own architects of our own lives. Nobody's going to walk that road for us and nobody's going to explore that path for us except ourselves. And whether you do it alone, as I was mentioning before, or you do it in the company of a small group of people or three generations of your family, um, I think that 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 experience that comes from it is invaluable. So a lot of these anecdotes come from a lot of my solo travels because that often is when stuff happens and in the most positive and wonderful way because you kind of put yourself out out there and you rely upon the kindness of strangers and almost always it turns out to be an in you know a, a memorable experience and other um tips and hacks and suggestions everything from you know how to pack to um defensive packing as well for example i i always go the extra inch to make sure that if anything happens i'm prepared whether you're out there alone and you need to be you know triple safe or if you're with others when you lose something that's always enough to 
ruin your trip or at least set you back a few hours. So I make copies of everything. I make sure people have copies. I make sure I'm covered. I make sure I have addresses. I make sure that people know where I am to some degree. Um, you know, back in the day, I remember leaving oh, for weeks and weeks at a time, and my poor parents, you know, I'd have to stand in line at the post office with a bag full of quarters in order to be able to call home for two minutes and try to explain to my mother just where I was in the world and when she'd be hearing from me again. So um, things have changed a whole lot. I think it's easier to travel now, and I think a lot of these destinations are more accessible to us now and more easily so. You know, there were times when it would take you forever and a day to get from here to there. And now in nine hours on a plane, you know, you're in a foreign country that, you know, as a younger person maybe seemed totally unrealistic and impossible. And now suddenly there you are and, uh, you know, ready for the time of your life. So we can travel farther, we can travel more easily, and to some degree we can travel more uh, inexpensively, especially if you do your homework and especially if you travel off-season and, and that kind of thing. I feel like the advent of the, the smartphone has changed and made things so much easier. On my last trip in 2019, traveling through Switzerland into to France, there was a, a railroad worker strike in, in France, and so all the trains were only running on sporadic schedules. Uh, so just being able to you know use my phone to look up information on when trains were running and then also something as simple as uh, Google Translator when you're in a foreign land has really helped. I know. Doesn't it make you wonder, like, how we survived? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't really know how I did when I think about it because those were some pretty hefty challenges compared to the facility we have now carrying, you know, this wealth of information of a computer in our pocket. And then it was not even an option. I don't know. I mean, clearly we survived to talk about it now. But um, it was a very different experience, that's for sure. And you made do with what you had. So clearly it was doable and manageable. But, you know, and even in the generation before that, I'm sure they were wondering how they even you know, made it through and made it from one place to the next. Right. You know, how did you book hotels? Um, right. If you arrived at a hotel where you thought you had a reservation and there was a sign on the door that says, gone fishing, what did you do? <laughs> you know, it was 1130 at night. Your trainage, what did you do? So I don't know, but it must have been a crazy trip, a crazy ride. <laughs> <laughs> that was Patricia Schultz. She's the author of Why We Travel. It's available everywhere books are sold. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the Earth Section. Every four years, sports fans across the globe come down with something I like to call World Cup fever. Oddly, the condition isn't usually as prevalent in the United States, though soccer's popularity does continue to grow here domestically. The International Soccer Tournament kicked off last Sunday and continues for another three weeks. How far can the United States team advance? That'll depend on the result of the team's upcoming match with Iran on Tuesday. Most American sports fans will show more interest in today's football games than World Cup matches, but Roger Bennett is doing his best to win over American soccer fans. Who's Roger Bennett? The Liverpool native is known to millions of soccer fans as one of the co-hosts of the popular podcast and now TV show Men in Blazers. Bennett is in a unique position to communicate with American sports fans because while he grew up watching soccer in England, he also has a tremendous love of American sports, especially football and baseball. In fact, he's a diehard Bears and White Sox fan. More on that in a bit. Bennett's love for all things American inspired him to write a book last year titled Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. The memoir offers a funny, heartwarming portrait of an English lad who grew up fascinated with American pop culture. Bennett writes lovingly about what the United States represented to him as a young person trying to figure himself out in northern England. And while Bennett currently calls New York City home, 
His first American love is actually Chicago. Bennett is a big Bears and White Sox fan who loves Pequod's pizza. He lived in Chicago for four years after he made the life-altering decision to move to America after college. I had a lot of questions when I caught up with Bennett last year to talk about his book, his love of American culture, and what turns out to be a lifelong connection to Chicago. So your book, Reborn in the USA, isn't a a traditional memoir. It's really a a very personal love letter to America. And that connection to the U.S., I guess, can be traced back to your great-grandfather wanting to immigrate to the States. My great-grandfather was uh, in Ukraine, a butcher, uh, fleeing like millions in the early 1900s. And he wanted to move to the great city of Chicago, then the hog capital of the world, And the myth of my family is that when the boat docked in Liverpool to refuel, he saw the one tall building on the Liverpool skyline, thought he was in New York City and got off the boat at the wrong stop. (laughs) And so we were marooned in the northwest of England rather than in the promised land. And Liverpool, where I grew up, a magnificent city, but at a very dark time, uh, the north of England fell apart culturally, economically, the coal mills, the coal pits, the steel mills, the cotton mills shut down, and Liverpool, a port city, had no purpose anymore. Unemployment soared. Uh, there was a real darkness, a heroin epidemic in the city. And I survived by telling myself I was an American trapped in an English boy's <laughs> body, and I inhaled every book, movie, television show, record, album, um, Chicago Bears, uh, you know, just the pursuit of sport, and ultimately Run DMC and Tracy Chapman. They all gave me a sense of a world that could be lived oh, in color, whereas mine was lived in black and white. And my intention was to document it. The book is a love letter, I hope, to America at a time when our nation could really do with one. So I'm coming to you from Chicago, and there are so many Chicago connections in the book, so I want to <laughs> talk about them. So you referenced your great-grandfather. He left his native Ukraine with a plan to move to Chicago. And as you referenced, he accidentally gets off in Liverpool. So we think of immigrants, uh, especially from Europe, coming to the U.S. and wanting to go to New York. Why did he want to go to Chicago? It was, it was where butchers, you know, it was their, their Disneyland. It was the hog capital of the world. And so this family sensed that when Liverpool was you know, a dark place, when life was full of challenge, I was very close with my grandfather, who was also a butcher, and he would take off his mantelpiece, a, a cheap tourist tchotchke, the Statue of Liberty, um, which I have in my hand as I speak to you. It's now on my desk. Um, and he'd look at it and be like, we should have lived there. We're meant to be. We're meant to be in America. We should have lived in Chicago. And so I inherited that sense that, you know, whenever things were bad for me and life was was uh, in Liverpool at the time. It was full of challenge. I just said to myself, I'm not meant to be here. We're meant to be in Chicago. And I taught myself into believing it. And I, I realized through this book that it's a very universal uh, experience that when you're a teen in particular and you're full of urges that you don't understand, you do make believe. You romanticize other places. A lot of Americans romanticize England. They love the Smiths. They think they wish they were in Manchester yep. or in yep. London or, or the Beatles in Liverpool. And so that's a very universal theme. And the one thing that is different is that I didn't just dream about it. I acted upon it and uh, ultimately wanted to tell the story of what it feels like to become a new American and just take nothing about America for granted, which I think is really important in our time and our day. So you write about being exposed to American football through this, uh, I guess it was like a new highlight TV show that was debuting in into England, and then you're enthralled with this new sport, and you decide to root for the Chicago Bears because of your your family connection to the your almost home. There's a really funny part in the book where you write about you and your best friend calling random Chicago numbers on game days. <laughs> so you're just hoping to get get someone on the phone and get some updates. Yes, yes. I mean, did, I I was a football English football mad individual Liverpool is football crazy in the same way as Indiana's high school basketball crazy Uh, but it was a deeply violent culture in the 80s the hooligan culture was at its peak and in 1982 the NFL started a broadcast on it as a one-hour show 
which crushed together all of the highlights of the NFL from the previous weekend. It would run every Sunday night, but the games would already be a week old. But in the pre-internet era, we had no idea. We didn't know what the scores were until it aired. There was no way of finding out. And the Chicago Bears, I, I pledged allegiance to them because of my great-grandfather. My timing was unbelievable. This team who'd been, who'd been just full of self-loathing and self-sabotage, they'd largely frittered away the career of the greatest human being to ever pull on a Bears jersey, <laughs> Walter Payton. And then late in his career, somehow they pulled it together rebuilt themselves into a swaggering collective who biblically smited all comers, trash-talking, swaggering along the way. Uh, teenage Rog watching this, teenage me, I looked at it and I said, it's possible they rewrote their own history. It's possible to change what you are. If they can do it, I can do that too. And I delighted in their Super Bowl season. And the one frustration pre-internet was I couldn't work out what that was happening as the games were going on. So me and my best friend, we ultimately both moved to Chicago um, together right after university. But back then we were teenagers. I would go round to his house. I'd never dream of doing this in my own. My dad would have killed me. And when we knew the Bears were playing Sunday, we would pick up his phone in his bedroom and just call random 312 numbers. <laughs> and God bless you, Chicagoans, because you would answer... And random strangers would happily give us our own personal <laughs> broadcast. But like 20, 30, 40 minutes at a time, we'd have some wonderful Chicagoan taking pity <laughs> on these two passionate strangers. They'd be like, Jim McMahon's dropping back. He fires. He finds <laughs> Willie Gold 20 yards, 30 yards. Willie Gold stopped at the 50-yard line. And we'd get our own personal commentary at great cost i should say to my friend's dad who had to pay the bill for these long distance calls oh, but that is how i followed the chicago bears super bowl season and it was magnificent oh man that is hilarious i was debating telling you this you know i love chicago this is where i grew up but um i'm a green bay packer fan so we differ there you know we had aaron Rodgers on our show this year yeah and i asked him what it's like to rip the heart out of me and millions of bears fans <laughs> On the, on the regs, and he said, he, he just stopped and laughed and said, that gives me so much pleasure, Roger, that gives me so much bloody pleasure, but this is going to be, that's the joy of sport, this is going to be our year, Justin Fields, this <laughs> is going to be our year, and you always tell yourself that, it never happens, but the joy of sport is you always make the case. Exactly. Your next interaction with Chicago came as a teenager in 1986, you spent a month with a North Shore family, I think it was Northbrook. And the way you write yeah. about your experience during that month, it was so much joy comes through. I don't want to oversimplify, but it feels like that trip really changed your life. It, 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 you can oversimplify. It absolutely did. I had a pen pal, young listeners, before the internet, used to write letters to strangers in foreign lands. And I met a Chicago and a wonderful man, Jeff Owen, and his family in Northbrook. We corresponded through the Bears Super Bowl season. <laughs> And I was probably the only English person who owned a seven-inch uh, vinyl copy of the Super Bowl Shuffle and an enormous <laughs> Chicago Bears foam finger, which I was very proud of. And I would send him Everton Football Club, Premier League, or before the Premier League, English football uh, tchotchkes in the opposite direction. And at the end of the year, he invited me over. He said, come and have a summer here in Chicago with me. And I'd hardly ever left England. This was a, it was as if he'd said to me, come to Mars, come to Mars with me. And I was blessed to have the opportunity to go. It was the greatest summer of my life on the beach in Glencoe, meeting real Americans, living a life in the area John Hughes had used as his canvas uh, for pretty well every movie he ever made. And it was delirious. When Ferris Bueller's Day Off came out shortly after I returned. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. It didn't seem like a comedy to me. It was, seemed like a documentary of how I'd spent my time going to the bleachers at Wrigley Field and sneaking beers going to the Art Institute of Chicago, inhaling Pequod Pizza, Carson's Ribs. And it was a magical experience, which was capped off by meeting the Chicago Bears themselves. Um, they had, well, the one devastating part of my time in Chicago was by fate. My heroes had actually gone to London to play in a game, the first ever game in England against the Dallas Cowboys. So I was where they should have been. They were where I normally was. 
we'd merely swap places and I found that absolutely tortuous. And then during the game broadcast from Wembley Stadium, the broadcaster said, and the Bears will be returning right back to Chicago after the game to begin their preseason. And I turned around to my hosts and I said, we have to go and meet them. And God bless them. God bless them. They were like, sure, as if it was the normal thing to do, to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and drive to O'Hare Airport and wait for the Chicago Bears to return from England. And they did. Mike Ditka crashed through the international arrivals uh, doors first with his cigar, shouting, these men are your heroes. Leave them alone. And I just fired off my flash in his face. And one by one, they all came out. I got to meet Walter Payton. I document all of this in the yep. book, this, this full story. But meeting the great Walter Payton, who was as sweet in real life as his nickname belied. And then William Refrigerator Perry, the face, the carnivalesque face of that team, bounded out. I was 15. He put his arm around me, pulled me in close and whispered into my ear. He said, dream big dreams, kids. I did. You can, too which now I work in sports, I know is an amalgam of every cliche, every athlete just tosses <laughs> off the kids that they want to get away from. But back then, I, I, I turned around and said, oh my God, the fridge himself has told me to move to Chicago. And I swore right then and then, because of him, I said, make that dream real. And then the rest of the book is about how I followed up. And I owe the fridge just an enormous debt of thanks. And then in the uh, epilogue, you reveal that you moved to Chicago after college, which you referenced a little bit ago, and lived here for four years. What were those years like? They were, they were deeply formative. I, I moved to Chicago. I mean, Tracy Chapman's album came out, and her message of, if you do not like where you are, be a person of action, make bold changes, get out while you can. That was really the capper. And I decided right then and there, first opportunity, I was going to complete my great-grandfather's journey, albeit 80 years after he set sail, and I wanted to move to Chicago. I didn't know anybody there, just to be clear. I I arrived as a 22-year-old. I didn't know anything about Chicago. I looked at a map. I saw there was an area called Rogers Park, and I was like, that's my name. That sounds amazing. I'm going to move there. And it was, it was, it was, it was an incredible four-year period. I arrived on a tourist visa um, and simply never left. And I was a baker. I was a waiter, a terrible waiter. I was a librarian. I slept in the afternoon in the stacks of a library. And, um, you know, it was one of hustle and grind. But I learned that that's Chicago. Chicago is a, not unlike Liverpool, is a city of hustlers and storytellers and romantics, grinders, and I um, adored every single second. I, I, I left Chicago in 1996, and I will say there's not a day I do not wake up uh, without missing that city. I ache for it. I come back often. I come back mostly for my beloved White Sox to throw out a pitch, a very bad first pitch at every opportunity. And so even though I no longer live there, it's a city up there with Liverpool, which is the most magical kingdom in, 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 in my experience. Now you're talking. Big White Sox fan over here. Glad to be in first place. So uh, these days, if you're in Chicago for 72 hours, how are you spending it? Definitely going to Pequod's Pizza. find Chicago, and I always did when I lived there. I found it fascinating. It's just a, uh, the most fluid city that I'd ever lived in, where the neighborhoods are completely... Uh, transitioning, constantly reinventing itself, adding new layers of history. It's a, it's a, it's a city that I just adore walking around. It's a city that the, the stories it tells itself about itself are genuinely uh, and remarkably fascinating. So to walk around Chicago is to feel alive. I remember one night going home from on the L. Um, I think I'd had a long night at the Hopleaf, which was uh, just a joy and a wonder. And I walked onto the L tracks. Um, it was snowing. It was freezing. The hall was really kicking in. And it was, it was so early in the morning. I don't even remember what time it was. And I saw an old Chicago. It was just me and him on the platform. And he turned around to me. It was, it was unbearably cold. He just looked at me and he goes, 
tis a wonderful day to be alive. <laughs> and God, it was true. And that, that's the joy of Chicago to me, especially as my first experience of America. It's a place where I learned to take nothing for granted, to savor everything, to make great memories. And there's no finer city for that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with New York Times bestselling author Roger Bennett about his book, Reborn in the USA. We've only scratched the surface of what's in the book. I'm asking you a lot about Chicago, but uh, you write about movies, music, and your growing pains as a teenager that is really universal, I think, for many of us. And then towards the end of the book, you touch on some very current events and incorporate those as you write about the emotional experience you had of becoming an American citizen a couple years ago. The past couple of years, of course, were unprecedented for a litany of reasons. Did that time period influence the the final draft of the book? It's a great question. I, I, I've always wanted to write this book. I've always wanted to retrace the breadcrumbs, you know, the heart-to-heart, Fantasy Island, Miami Vice, Cheers, um, Run DMC, Walter Payton, um, Molly Ring, all the Tracy Chapman, all these, to me, they're just, they taught me who I am, how to be, how to carry myself in the world. And I always wanted to retrace Um, each tiny breadcrumb through the enchanted forest that was the idea of America for me. Um, I had the opportunity, but for the darkest reason, which was I'm a kid that grew up with the Statue of Liberty and the Manhattan skyline painted on his bedroom wall. I ended up moving to and living in that very city. And then during the pandemic, it was ground zero for COVID and the spread of it um, in the United States of America, a terrible time of chaos and fear and the unknown. And during lockdown, sports stopped, and I've organized my life around sports. Sports is how I find meaning, find structure, feel a sense of global connection. And when sports stopped, I had nothing. And so I seized the opportunity to do something I've always wanted to do, which is to tell that story, the story of the American idea, story of courage and wonder. Um, I, the greatest day of my life was when I became American. And when you go and swear the oath of allegiance in a courtroom, and I did it with 162 people from 42 different nations, and you talk to them afterwards about the idea of America that helped them through you know, civil war, famine, conflict. Many of them had walked huge distances to be there. And all of us shared a sense of America. It had given us a sense of courage, a sense of hope, a sense of belief when we needed it. And I wanted to share that in this book. And what changed was just the the year was one of the darkest in our nation's history. And so I started writing it with joy. And then we moved through the Black Lives Matter summer, just the agony, the pain, the searing pain of that experience into the election. And... (laughs) The context changed on me. I wanted to write a book that was full with love. And what I realized was that I could offer up to America. And many Americans have been here, been blessed to be here for multi-generations. And I think they take so much of this for granted. And what I wanted to offer them was a sense of the power of the idea of America. It's a a central idea of my life. But it's a central idea of millions of human beings and their dreams. It gives them... It gives them so much power to get through their own lives. And I wanted to offer that up. So the context changed. And ultimately, this love letter that I've served up to the nation has come out at the very time I think our nation really needs one. Roger, I love the book. I can't thank you enough for making some time to talk with me. Gary, it's a delight. Thank you. That's Roger Bennett. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Reborn in the USA. It's available everywhere books are sold. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening. In this weekday room
I'm talking to the shadows One o'clock to four And Lord how slow the moments go When all I do is pour Black coffee Since the blues caught my Sunday dreams to drive.